Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're very welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. This webinar is brought to you in conjunction with uh, Dairy Sustainability Ireland and Food Drink Ireland Skillnet. This morning, we're delighted. I'm delighted to be joined by James Rambo, and I suppose one of the key questions we have going forward relates to carbon sequestration and carbon sequestration will be one of the key tools we have uh, to fight against climate change but one of the problems we have is our level of knowledge about carbon sequestration what causes it what factors influence it uh, is limited at the moment uh, Chagas have put in place an infrastructure uh, to measure carbon. And James, you're involved in, I suppose, the rollout and the gathering of the data, the processing of the data in relation to that to that carbon observatory. That's correct, Pat. Yeah, that's correct. Would you give us just, I suppose, a quick idea of what is that infrastructure and, and where is it placed around the country? Yeah, so we have uh, an infrastructure of 28 edicovarious towers or flux towers, depending on, on what denomination you're, you're from. Um, they're scattered throughout the country. So north, south, east, west, uh, over a range of different soil types, climatic regions, uh, farming systems and management types. Uh, so basically, we're looking, we're, what we're trying to do is uh, gather real-time data, uh, accurate quality data, that we can then model up to represent the actual emissions coming from our carbon emissions or carbon sequestration rates for uh, the whole country. Because right. at, at the minute in the national inventory, we're only using assumed uh, figures. We don't have actual figures. And I suppose uh, some of those assumed figures, I think we have data coming through that some of them are probably a little bit too high on some of the the, the um, landscapes that we're, we're, we're talking about. Exactly. Some are too high, some are, are too low. Yeah. Okay. Well, I suppose without further ado, I suppose we're, we're getting into the, the meat, I suppose, of your, your presentation. So we might uh, let you share your presentation with us. Perfect. So the floor is yours, James. Perfect. Okay. So look, as Pat said, I'm James Rombo. I'm a technologist in uh, based in Johnstown Castle. And I suppose I'm responsible for the, the rollout of, of the NASCO infrastructure. Um, throughout the country. It, we started back in 2020. Things were very slow initially with obviously COVID, um, but we've been slowly ramping up now and we're looking to finish sometime near the end of the year. Um, we should have our full 28 towers out and functioning and collecting data. So um, yeah, it's a, it was a, a very big project, um, but we're getting there. Okay, so very quickly, I'm going to talk about the, I suppose, the greenhouse gases. Okay, so we have uh, CO2, nitrous oxide and methane that, that we're all very aware of. And of course, water vapor is a greenhouse gas as well, but it's fairly self-regulating. So we don't really apply that to our, to our I suppose, uh, the issues that we're facing around increases in, in the rest of the, the greenhouse gases. So we have... I suppose, firstly, carbon dioxide, which we're going to focus on, I suppose, in, in this presentation. And we're, uh, it's pri primarily uh, an agriculture and, you know, burning fossil fuels issue, the increase in CO2. OK, so machinery use, irrigation, for example, on, on peatlands, transport, of course, vehicles, 
uh, and burning fossil fuels. So, uh, and of course, deforestation. So, not to mention that one, of course. But so that that's our primary, I suppose, uh, source of emission is CO2. And everything that we talk about is related in terms of CO2. So you might see at the bottom there, uh, carbon equivalents. So both nitrous oxide and methane are expressed generally in terms of CO2. You might see there uh, global warming potential of, of 265 and uh, global warming potential of 28. So both of those have 265 and 28 times more global warming potential than CO2, okay? So we move on to, to methane. Methane, the primary source of methane emissions at the minute is enteric fermentation, so which occurs in the digestive systems of, of, of cattle and sheep, you know, ruminant animals. Um, and then nitrous oxide, of course, the, that's nitrogen-based fertilizers. So when you apply it to crops, grasslands, fertilizers undergo chemical reactions and, uh, you know, release nitrous oxide. So um, these are... Three big gases, which are naturally abundant anyway, but they're just in, in, in too high a quantity at the minute and are, are causing global warming. Specifically to Ireland, then, I suppose, uh, the, the Irish agriculture sector accounts for 37% of Irish national GHG emissions. Now, if you look at the EU, that figure is around 9%, 8 9%. So in Ireland, it may seem like well, we're, we're, you know, it's huge. Why are we so bad, comparatively speaking? But this is in part due to our small industrial base. So you look at the likes of France, Germany, um, you know, the UK, for example, they have huge industry, which also emits a lot of, of um, you know, of GHGs. So I suppose proportionally, it looks like our agricultural sector is pumping out way more than it should be. But in actual fact, it's pretty much in line with the rest of Europe. However, just proportionally, it, it, it does account for a, a large chunk in Ireland. Um, so again, look, I suppose the challenges that we're facing, the industry is expanding. It's ever expanding to meet global food demand. Um, that's not going to change anytime soon, I would imagine. Uh, GHG emissions then have increased since 2011. And look, the trajectory is upwards unless we do something about it. Uh, we do have... GHG are targets in the agricultural sector, so we have to reduce by 25% by 2030. And then uh, our land use emissions and carbon sequestration by 37 to 58% reduction in emissions by 2030. So uh, we also have increasing political pressure, of course. Uh, the EU Green Deal, as we know, the, there's an increased emphasis on, on plant-based diets and uh, the likes of the, far, the Dutch farm protests, for example, for the, the suggested herd decrease there. And we must reach car, or climate, or, sorry, carbon neutrality by uh, 2050. So moving on. The agenda, we'll just quickly talk about four sections. So covariance, I suppose, the fundamentals, uh, the challenges that we faced and are facing uh, in installing these, th this infrastructure, how we are overcoming challenges or how we've overcome challenges, and then future directions. So where... The technology, I suppose, will go or where the research and, and the data will end up bringing us into the future. So in section one, as I said, I'll just give a brief, brief description of uh, what Edicobarians is and then speak a bit about NASCO and I suppose the benefits that we, we aim to bring to the country by using this infrastructure. Okay, so what is Edicobarians? So this is, I suppose, your pretty much your carbon cycle. 
So any covariance measures uh, net ecosystem uh, exchange, okay? So photosynthesis during the day, plants are photosynthesizing. So they're pulling in CO2 to undergo their natural processes, okay? Whilst that's happening, the ecosystem itself is also respiring. So as in the diagram, you have microbial decomposition, root respiration, stem and leaf respiration, etc. And then you have the soil itself, <clears throat> which is uh, also the bacteria are respiring within the soil. So you have this in and out motion between, uh, in terms of CO2, uh, you have CO2 coming into the system and you have CO2 leaving system. So you have that every day, it doesn't ever stop, okay? So we need to be able to measure in order to, to, to quantify, I suppose, our emission rates or our sequestration rates, we need to know how much CO2 came in and how much CO2 left. Now, when we talk in terms of carbon, there's not just CO2 we have to look at. We have to look at carbon as a whole. So if we're talking about an agricultural field, for example, uh, a, a typical long-term grassland, you need to know your imports and exports. So if you've come in with uh, slurry, for example, you've added carbon. If you go in and cut a silage uh, harvest, you've removed a load of carbon because you've taken that grass away. So you need to account for that when you're doing up your figures. Okay, so just I spoke briefly there where you have that in and out of, of CO2. Okay, so that that actually ends up forming these little eddies, right? And I've kind of tried to describe it in this image here. And, and there's a little tower there, uh, which represents the, the eddy covariance tower. So the air actually moves in pockets of eddies like this, and it moves across the landscape in an upwards direction, certainly during the during the day. Um, and each of these eddies is carrying different greenhouse gases, okay? The one we're particularly interested at the minute is, is CO2. So as I suppose the eddy comes into contact with our analyzer, it will measure in a large eddy, for example, it will measure two CO2 molecules going in. And then when the eddy comes back around, it'll measure one. So the difference there is one, one more has left than has come in, okay? Um, <clears throat> typically the instrumentation, I'll, sorry, I shouldn't have moved on there. Typically the instrumentation is uh, a sonic anemometer. So that's just a, it, it looks like a claw, I suppose. Um, and it's measuring three dimensional wind direction and speed. And that coupled with uh, an analyzer gives us, I suppose, our CO2 concentration. Okay. Now that's measuring at 10 hertz, which is 10 times a second, and it measures all year round for the duration of however long you want it to measure. Typically, we'd like to gather 20, 25 years, 30 years data sets, um, because obviously every year is different, as we know. So when we have that data, um, because it's coming in at 10 times a second, it's very hard to try and analyze that data. So we average it out over 30 minutes. Okay, So we take a, a 30 minute data set and average it out. Now we can actually look at it and make sense of the data that's coming in, okay? Um, the I suppose the advantages of using the eddy covariance technique is that we're getting real-time continuous measurements. So uh, you have, you know, you, you can account for management changes and see the response to management changes instantaneously, okay? So there's no... Um, lag if you like in in if you go out and you plow up today the, the the result will be instantaneous in terms of co2 we'll pick it up immediately um 
We also, I suppose, it allows us to capture the seasonal variations in CO2 levels or um, after fertilizer applications, for example, we'll be able to capture plumes of, of CO2 that you know arise after an application of, of calcium ammonium nitrate, for example. Um, so that's, I suppose, the basics of eddy covariance. I'll go into it more as, as I suppose, as, as we go on in the presentation. But referring now to the National Agricultural Soil Carbon Network, or NASCO as we call it, the benefits and the reasons why it's being established, okay? So it's, I suppose, as I made reference to earlier, the, the figures that are in the national inventory at the minute are assumed figures, but we want to improve and model and map that carbon uptake and release from agricultural soils, which we currently don't have. We need to be able to account for carbon sequestration rates based on climatic conditions, soil type, um, and management practices. So. To give a, a brief example of that, if you have a permanent grassland, you go in and plow, all of a sudden in that instant, you're losing carbon out of your ground, okay? So you've opened up the ground and now all of a sudden the bacteria has gone into hyperdrive and it's starting to break down uh, the carbon that's in that soil and it's being released as they respire as CO2. So we'll also get a better understanding of mitigation measures uh, to increase carbon sequestration. So Instead of ploughing, for example, instead of ploughing, you could maybe look at direct drilling, you know, or uh, instead of having just a ryegrass um, sward, you incorporate multi-species into your, your grazing platform. So that's another element of it. Then, of course, the national inventory, as I referred to earlier, national inventory and emission factor refinement. So we'll have actual figures uh, that go into our national inventory, they will be reported back to the EU, of course, and they'll help, I suppose, bolster um, this potential carbon market that's coming down the line. And then having that data set will allow us also to uh, participate in the EU ICOS. So the ICOS is the Integrated Carbon Observation System, or, yeah, system network. Um, it's an EU-wide network where all of this eddy covariance data gets fed back in. Now, they have very, very strict criteria uh, and data management policies and all of that, but it will allow us to submit data to there and, I suppose, help bolster the, the Europe-wide data set in terms of carbon or carbon emissions and carbon sequestration. Okay. So we'll very quickly go on to section two. So the challenges we face and are facing uh, during this setup, I've put in a picture of David and Goliath there because it certainly seemed at times like uh, we were facing Goliath. But um, the two topics in particular I'll talk about are site selection and permissions and data management and storage. So I suppose, the issues that we encountered fall into these categories, okay? So ecological representation, permissions, access, access being access to the site, environmental impact, communications and safety. Now, if uh, there, there was a matrix established by Gary, Dr. Gary Larrigan, um, where he selected the site based on a, a number of criteria, okay? That refined, obviously, all of the potential sites down to a manageable number. However, sometimes when you visit the site, the site was not 
as it was in uh, on paper. So, for example, it was classified as a peat potentially on paper, but when you actually get to the site, it's really only an organomineral. So that site now immediately is, you know, disclassed because it, it's not suitable for what it was originally intended. Um, so again, when we encounter those situations, we revert back to the matrix, re-input some data from, from different sites, and the, the outcome gives us another potential site. The permissions, I suppose, were naturally enough for dealing with a range of, of, of different organizations, of, of private people. Um, if you have you know, private farmers, you're coming onto their land and you're asking them, can we occupy you know, a small area, albeit of, of their ground, but you have also the, the implications of that, okay? Um, you're, now that farmer is going to have a technician on their site every 21 days, potentially in the height of grazing season, taking measurements and what some people just don't want that. Um, so I suppose there was an element of uh, meeting them face to face, you know, uh, explaining the process, giving them a, a time frame of this experiment that it's a long term time frame and that, um, you know, the, I suppose the area that it's going to occupy. So it's essential to build trust and to maintain the open dialogue. If at any point in the process, the farmer or the landowner wasn't happy with whatever process, it was quickly taken into account, discussed, and, and we adjusted based on that. So that was, I suppose, one area we encountered issues with permission was private landowners, but also we encountered issues on, on protected land. So we happened to have a tower on, a, on an SAC, and in order to establish the tower on that, we needed ministerial consent. So we had to go to NPD, uh, MPWS, which ended up leading, leading us on to the Department of Housing, which ended up requiring a, a letter from the minister allowing us to, to install there. Now, that also uh, you know, required an environmental impact assessment, which I'll go on uh, to a bit later. But... Um, so they're the kind of permissions we we had issues with when we were, you know, trying to get access to sites. So I suppose the third point then is very relevant access. So if there wasn't adequate access to a site, then also it was discontinued or discounted because, you know, if, if you're having to walk 10 kilometers into a, an area where you, you know, to install a tower, that's unfeasible, albeit we do have one site where we did have to walk about a kilometer into a bog. Um, but access was very important. If if you couldn't get relatively easy access, uh, it would just become too time consuming to visit the sites. So it was again discounted. Again, so I go on to the environmental impact here. So there was a few sites there where we had to do an environmental in, or impact assessment uh, to, I suppose, ensure that any ecologically sensitive species weren't going to be adversely impacted. I suppose by by our install and ongoing maintenance um so once they were completed again they were submitted reviewed and um we were granted permission or not a massive one uh which might not seem obvious at the start is communications so all of our towers are remotely access capable so each one has a modem each one has a sim card currently that uh, modem ports all of the data back to a server in chagas 
Uh, and it also allows us to get into the tower remotely as well. So from Johnstown Castle, I can log into the furthest away tower and get an update on on how the sensors are reading, if any filters are blocked, for example, or if, or if um, any of the mirrors need cleaning, etc. So if any of the sites that we got to turned out not to have cellular connectivity, again, that was a site that was discounted. And then, of course, lastly, safety. Um, so safety is paramount. So if the site wasn't safe for personnel, for staff to access, for us to install, maintain the tower, it was, again, removed from our search. So they were all big, I suppose, obstacles that we came across when we were initially setting up this infrastructure, all of which, thankfully, now we've, we've actually you know surpassed and, and worked our way around each and every one. And uh, we're relatively happy now with, with the, the final product. So data management, this is another huge area because, so we, as I said, we've 28 towers throughout the country. Um, they're creating huge volumes of data. You're talking uh, every month they're producing 8, 10 gigabytes of, um, of data each. Okay, so, and that's, that's going to be a big data set when you're looking, talking years down the line. So how... Are we going to store that data? How are we going to format that data? How are we going to secure that data? And how are we going to make it accessible to that large data set? How are we going to make it accessible to people? So stakeholders, interested parties, you know, this is publicly funded infrastructure. So we'll have to be publicly available data at some point. So uh, that I suppose that's a conversation that's ongoing at the minute. We are making, I suppose, huge headway on it. Um, We've recently hired, a, I suppose, a data management technologist in, in Chagas. So uh, uh, John Highland, he's making huge inroads with, with how we're going to store this data, how we're going to protect it, and but at the same time, how we're going to make it accessible to the public. Um, we'll move on to section three. So again, I spoke about, about the challenges, but how, I suppose, did we overcome some of those challenges? We overcame them by collaboration and partnerships, uh, by standardizing protocols and training, and by, I suppose, forecasting long-term planning and sustainability. So currently, this is only some of our collaborators and partners. Um, you can see there's, there's quite a lot, um, ranging from government departments to um, to or, sorry universities, to large national and international projects, um, it's it's huge. So, you know, building these relationships is going to allow us to not only uh, tap into the knowledge and skills and, and and resources of these other organisations, which we might not necessarily have, but it'll enable us collectively to achieve goals that maybe would have been beyond us uh, or beyond any single entity. So uh, I suppose the level of collaboration between the organizations is going to hopefully continue to grow um, and expand you know, the network further, uh, which will ultimately increase the impact and scale of the research being ca carried out. And of course, a big part of, of you know, a research goal is impact. Um, and hopefully you know, the, the, the infrastructure that we've, we've set up now will create huge impact 
in terms of changing policy and advising policy into the future. So next, I'll talk about where we standardize protocols and, and training. So we're all aware of SOPs. Uh, some of them are quite arduous to get through, um, but they have to be in position. They have to be there to allow us to, I suppose, train staff to uh, carry out, you know, work to a certain quality. Um, you know, the because of the data set that we're, we're creating, we have to have each site consistent. We have to make sure that it's reproducible if anybody ever wants wanted to reproduce it. Um, so, as I said, there, there's a number of benefits to creating, to, to standardizing protocols and training. So it serves not only as a reference guide to new staff. Of course, there's not a, an area in the country at the minute that's, that's not... Uh, you know, finding it difficult to hire staff or to retain staff even. So, you know, if there's a high staff turnover, you need to be able to teach uh, new staff quickly and effectively. So, you know, that this is where we've kind of standardized the protocols uh, to allow them to, to pick up a document and to be able to visit any of these sites and for them to face the exact same site, if you like, uh, regardless of wherever it is. So, um, again, if we're ever challenged on it, it'll ensure that our quality, the, the quality of our data is robust. And it also, I suppose, helps with efficiency. So if, if you're going from site to site, every site is the same. If you encounter a problem on one site that and you encounter a similar problem on another site, it's pretty much going to be the same outcome or the same results to try and fix it. Um, that's the, I suppose, the standardized protocols and training. Again, the, the training using uh, the the manufacturers, you know, in-house training, I suppose, having checklists that, you know, you hit every time you, you visit a site, you fill it in. There's a record of the, of the maintenance then. So again, if you're ever challenged, you have a full, I suppose, documented maintenance record for each and every tower. Um, <clears throat> again, we go on to long-term planning and sustainability. So I suppose, it was all well and good getting the funding for the initial infrastructure, um, having the, the the small, I suppose, skeleton crew to set up the initial infrastructure. But again, this this kind of infrastructure needs longevity for it to be worth its initial investment. So it has to survive 20, 25, 30 plus years. Um, so in order to do that, we needed to develop a sustainable funding model. Now, Dr. Rachel Murphy has done great work uh, on developing that model. Um, you know, she's really worked through the figures and how much, you know, it's going to cost on a yearly basis to keep this infrastructure up and going. And I suppose to future-proof it as well as one thing to uh, to just keep it ticking over, but you need to update it uh, or, or it'll quickly fall into redundancy. So... That sustainable funding model will allow us, I suppose, to be resilient to economic cycles. So if there's downturns in the economy, that, that that pot of money, I suppose, is still there to ensure that we're still collecting that data and it doesn't slip over time. Um, and then, you know, it'll promote research, innovation and collaboration. You know, uh, the, the longer this um, data set runs on, I suppose, the, the more valuable it becomes. Uh, I suppose to use the words of a, a, a UK 
mathematician Clive Humby, um, data is the new oil. So, you know, if, if we're generating uh, a data set with integrity, with quality, um, projects, stakeholders, um, you know, government bodies, they will all, you know, clamber around uh, to try and get a piece of the pie, if you like. So it's, it's important that we have that long-term plan uh, to, to not only give Ireland as a whole uh, good data into the future on an on a, you know, international level, but also internally for us you know, to bolster our own reputation, to bolster the reputation of, of our research. Um, and again, all of that data over time will support policy decisions. Um, section four, we go into where we can see these going. So there's technological advances, of course, that's a never-ending train. Um, you know, technology moves on regardless. So even with the rollout of these towers now, there are technologies now that are, you know, trying to draw on the information that we're, that we're gathering to make it even more accessible and cheaper to be able to collect the, the, the carbon emission data, for example. Just to give some examples here, we have uh, drones, for example, you know, uh, using NDVI. Terrain AI are doing great work on, on um, remote sensing at the minute. So I just included, you know, I suppose what they're looking at in terms of machine learning, in terms of collecting data on different scales. So the Eddie Covariance Towers being the ground scale, looking at the field scale. The drone, then you're looking at, you know, numbers of hectares. The plane, again, larger still, and then ultimately the satellites. And all of that is being fed in to a model where they're trying to develop machine learning, where they can, you know, where the machine is able to accurately estimate the sequestration or emission levels from just, you know, from satellite level as opposed to ground level. Again, <clears throat> Having this infrastructure is going to allow us integration with other monitoring networks. So ICOS, which I've already made reference to, Terrain AI, of course, we'll be feeding data to them, um, which I've referenced already about the machine learning and the remote sensing. The Agricultural Catchments Program, of course, so uh, some of the towers which are within NASCO are actually Agricultural Catchments Program funded. So there are five altogether at the minute, and they're scattered throughout the country on, the, on five different um, catchments. And then it'll allow us <clears throat> to participate in CAMS as well, which is the Copernicus Atmosphere Monitoring Service. So it's the, I suppose, an EU atmosphere monitoring service, um, which will be, again, invaluable for cross-country um, collaboration. So that just brings it to the end, I suppose, of our, our discussion. Um, if anybody has any further inquiries, our contact details are on the screen now um, and they'll be made available later. So if anybody has any questions, um, I'd like to thank you for listening and I will answer any questions. Okay, and just to remind people to use the, 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 the Q&A for, for questions. Um, I suppose a, a couple of things, uh, oh, sorry, you might stop sharing your, your presentation there. Yeah. A, a couple of things spring to mind. Um, if I'm looking at the, the, the uh, transport sector, uh, to calculate my uh, emissions, I take the level of emissions from a litre of diesel and I know the number of diesel, and it's a relatively easy calculation. It strikes me that the data you get 
has a long way to go from being the concentration in in eddies to actually giving us a figure uh, on the the level of of sequestration or or respiration that that, yeah. that coming from from land. There's a huge complex piece of calculation there, is there? Absolutely, absolutely. So again, as you've referenced, if you may, if, if you just look at the concentration, it gives you only part of the picture. Okay, um, it's what is leading to that concentration that is the important part. Okay, so the management decisions that have made, you know, that have happened on farm, for example, the soil type, you know, peats, for example, we know drained peats emit a hell of a lot more CO two than um, you know a, a free draining mineral soil. So, th- of course, then you're talking about the, the crop type that's on it, you know, the climatic region. So the drivers that behind all of that is the climate. So. There's a num- multitude of factors to take into account when you're dealing with all of this. And again, you're talking carbon imports and exports. Aside from the gaseous form, you need to know what carbon has left the system and what carbon has come into the system. And that's not only in terms of the biomass that's you know on the ground, but also carbon leaves through water. So you need to you know look at dissolved organic carbon as well. There, there are multi- multiple, um, I suppose, avenues and, and areas that you need to look at to be able to build a picture. I mean, if you're looking at the animals then as well, you need to have the methane figure in order to be able to give you a carbon balance. You know, so there, there, it, it's a huge, you know, large scale thing to try and work your head around. Uh- I, I suspect you had a number of of organisations coming to you to try and put in, uh, to, to, uh, looking for, and and others where you were going in. So uh, the balance in terms of finding sites was that relatively easily got. I know sometimes it's difficult to get the the right place, but uh, I suppose a number of organisations did come to you with with offers. Absolutely, yeah. So it, you know, they weren't always the right sites, yeah. um, but certainly, yeah, the the the. Uh, the, uh, on the mineral side, the sites were very easy to get. Yeah. Uh, on the peat side, it was much more difficult. Um, the reason being that, like, a peat is so diverse, it's so difficult to classify that you know, almost two fields side by side, they might be what you would call peat, but they might be in two very different states of degradation or of drainage. Or of, of type of peat. So trying to guess sites that were representative of a large area was very difficult to do. And actually, we're still, we still have two sites that we're trying to kind of really tease out and work through. And uh, hopefully we'll get it done and dusted by the end of the year. But it's it's proving to be very difficult in terms of the peat. Yeah. Yeah. And and presumably the the emissions and and the management practices that are possible on a, a, a blanket peat compared to a raised peat or, or just chalk and cheese. Absolutely, absolutely, exactly, exactly. Mark, questions? James, James, yeah, there's a lot of questions, James, a lot of, a lot of compliments on your presentation. Uh, well done. James, there's a, there's a number of questions here around soil carbon mm-hmm. and uh, what role do soil carbon measurements play within within the program? So, yeah, so again, our measurements give us the actual CO2, uh, you know, exchange, if you like. But at the minute, the signpost program are rolling out their, I suppose, their actual soil uh, sampling phase. So they're looking at soil 
carbon sitting in the first 10 centimeters and then down to a meter um, in the soil profile. Okay, so that'll give us on our signpost farms, that'll give us the carbon stock that's currently there, right? And that then we'll have a starting point. We'll have the tower monitoring events over a five year period. Then the signpost will be back in, they'll sample again and get the, the, the new result. Okay, so whether that be up or down in terms of ca uh, soil carbon, we will have the picture with the Edicovariance Tower telling us the story of why it's up or down in those five years. So there's a lot of work going on currently looking at soil carbon. Yeah, and, and they're being established as we speak, um, yeah, yeah. James, out on the signpost farms, as you say. There's another question here as well, James. Is it possible to distinguish between agricultural-based emissions and a cement factory emissions located in mainly an agricultural area? So can you differentiate where the emissions are coming from? Yeah, you can. It, it all depends, I suppose, on the placement of your tower in relation to that uh, that that cement plant. So predominantly in this country, our winds come from the southwest. OK, so if you were to place your tower northeast of the cement plant, you would find it quite difficult to disentangle what emission comes from the cement plant, what emission comes from the actual agricultural field, if you like. But you know, if you were clever and put the the cement plant to to the southwest or to your northeast, should I say, um, then you're, there's nothing obstructing your predominant wind in terms of of um, you know CO two uh, emission. So what you'll be capturing predominantly will be CO two from from the land. But when the wind blows, then from the northeast, you will see discrepancies in that CO two. So you could then maybe partition out where you know when the wind is coming from the south or from the northeast i'm getting you know strange readings in terms of co2 so you can then maybe attribute that to the cement plant but certainly if you were if you were looking at a site um to establish a tower i would steer clear of a of a cement plant because it would okay, there's, be there's a number of, very good uh, there's a number of questions here around uh, the data that's been collected and is there any results available or can they be shared to date yeah look i mean the results they're, they're very very preliminary results um you know they're, they're showing that the national inventory figure of half a ton is actually uh, a bit underselling us uh, on mineral soils it's looking like it's more so around the ton mark maybe 1.2 um, so it looks like we're doing slightly better, but again, we're very preliminary. We're, you know, we're talking data sets that aren't even a year old yet, um, and that can change from year to year. I mean, next year, if we end up getting a drought, any you know fields that potentially are you know typically carbon sinks could turn into a source, and that will throw it off altogether. So you're looking at trying to develop a, an initial data set, which is not ideal. I mean, it's not what people want. People want answers now. You know, you want an initial data set of, of the bare minimum of three years, five being the ideal. But that's, you know, people need answers now, so we can only give them what we're seeing at the minute. But that that story could very well change by this time next year. Okay. Uh, just a, a question there about potential access by others to, to the data. And I think you mentioned in your presentation that it, it's a publicly funded uh uh, uh, project. 
Uh, yeah. To what extent will other researchers or international researchers even have uh, have access to to the the raw data if, if they want? So I, well, look, I suppose initially, I mean, we have priority um, because we're the the ones that have rolled out this infrastructure. So we have priority initially. What that period of time is, I I don't know. I know there are projects that are looking for data already. And they are submitting, of course, data sharing agreements and, you know, th those agreements are, are being put in place at the minute. But certainly after a period of time, whatever that period of time is, eludes me at the minute. But um, yes, that, that data will become publicly available and it's it will be there for whoever wants, wants it. You know, I would imagine that period of time might be five years, might be six years. I, I, I just don't know. Uh, there's a question there in relation to how advanced we are in relation to to other countries where there seems to be a lot more of a conversation a, around, uh, uh, I suppose, remunerating farmers for carbon sequestration. But in reality, have they a lot more information uh, on which to base that on? Or uh, is it is, is it very much kind of a, 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 a conversation depending on what comes out of science over a period. Yeah, so I mean, th there are countries who have, you know, way more advanced data sets than we do. Uh, you know, there are countries with 20, 25 year data sets there on carbon uh, emissions and carbon sequestration. Um, I suppose the, the disadvantage for other countries, they typically tend to be much larger than our country, okay? Um, so the figures that they're attributing while based in science, yes, might not be fully accurate because of the spatial variation between their, the sites that they have, okay? So whereas, you know, a, a figure of carbon might be worth 50 euros a ton or whatever that may be, and the payments are all based on that, I, I think that the, the view certainly is here from an Irish context is we need to get cold, hard figures um, for carbon so that when the market starts here that the market has integrity and that the you know the the values are actually based in fact as opposed to you know wildly modeled um data yeah and it's, I, it's a very it's a very uh i suppose huge area it depends whether you're looking at it from a public or a private perspective, I mean, the, the amount of companies at the minute, private industry at the minute that are doing carbon sampling and are they all following the same protocol? Are they all singing from the same hymn sheet? I don't know. So it, it requires serious thought, um, the, the carbon market that, that's emerging in this country. There's a question there uh, in relation to, or he's, he's just making the point that the talk seems to be all about carbon change, but what about the the, the carbon that's contained in, in, our, in our soils? And I think it would be fair to say that that uh, there is a huge emphasis on maintaining the carbon, the high levels of, of carbon that are in our soils, yeah. but also around uh, getting increases. And it, it's only the increases that can be that, that, that we can get credit for. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, we're, we're well positioned in this country to have quite high carbon levels in our soil anyway. Um, but it's certainly a, an absolute imperative that we keep that carbon that we have locked up, locked up and add to it. Um, 
you know, the, the, the potential for loss, as soon as you disturb soil, the potential for loss is huge. So the less you can disturb your soil, the more opportunity you have to hold on to the carbon that's there. And again, like I suppose I, what I should have mentioned is in terms of carbon, the, the more carbon you have in your soil to an extent, you're going to improve your, your, your soil structure. You're going to improve its water holding capacity, which I mean, in, in the summer months that are coming down the line is going to be vital for us to have, for our soils to be able to retain that water. And of course, when you have more carbon, you have more microbial activity, you have more mineralization, you have more minerals that are released, that which has a knock-on effect on your fertilizer bill. So it's all it's all relative. Before you even talk about a carbon market or getting payments for carbon, you should be getting carbon into your soil to benefit your own farm. It will impact your own farm to increase carbon levels aside from any payments that may come down the line. James, um, there's a few questions there around the whole area of soil carbon and CO2. Um, again, is there a conversion factor? Like you, you, you talk about the, the half ton or the, or the ton of soil carbon. Yeah. How do we convert that to CO2 equivalents? Oh, what's the figure now? Yes, so there is a, a figure. I, I think I can help you. Yeah. Uh, do you have the figure to hand? I think I think the conversion is three point six seven. That's it. Yeah, three point six seven. So when when you're talking about CO two, um, and you're converting that down to uh, to a, to actual carbon, uh, for every ton of carbon that you have, the equivalence is three point six seven tons of CO two. So if we if, if we if we fix or if we sequester a, a ton of soil carbon, that's the same as three point six seven tons of CO two equivalent. Exactly. Okay. Exactly, yeah. There's there's another question there around tillage. Um, James, you talk about when we plow soils, we get this release and you can pick it up quite quickly. What's yeah. the time frame? Or you know, what I mean, is it is it a matter of days, weeks, months? You know, years. You know. So it's immediate. Immediate. Yeah. So as soon as as soon as the soil is broken, you will see uh, an increase in CO two, um, okay. and that's why it's it's vital. So a tillage system, if you like, is a system that's forever in loss because you're always you know you have to go in and disturb the soil by the nature of the of the you know the beast that it is. But it's about minimizing those losses. So going in with cover crops, for example, as soon as possible after harvest, uh, you know, instead of a plowing system, maybe look at that direct drilling. Uh, you know, it, it's about, again, it's not always easy to, to say when you're looking someone with, you know, money in their hand, but instead of selling your straw, maybe look at chopping the straw. Maybe not every year, but every three, four years, chop the straw, put it back in. It's all about trying to keep the, the carbon that's there from, from being lost. So if, if you're putting in cover crops, if you're chopping straw, if you're going in with direct drilling instead of plowing, Again, you're minimizing the disturbance. You're allowing that soil to to recover, I suppose. Yeah. A question so, there. Uh, do you have any flux towers uh, in, in forest or in forest areas as well as agricultural? And is there a, a whole different collab or a, a, a calibration of the systems to take on board forest systems? Uh, so it, it actually, we, we 
as Chagas don't have one on a forest system at the minute, there are other, you know, uh, NUIM, Minute have, have one there, Trinity have uh, a couple out, out on forests. It's actually, uh, yes, there are slightly different setups. Uh, obviously, you, you, the forest one is an awful lot taller because it has to be above the canopy, but um, it's actually an easier system to monitor than an agricultural field because you, you can imagine the amount of activity in a forest, uh, certainly anthropogenic-related activity, is quite minimal. Whereas, you know, if you're looking at an intense dairy system, every 21 days there's animals going into that field. So you have to be there to account for the grass that grew, the grass that was grazed, the grass you know, that was taken away. You, there's an awful lot more involved on a much shorter time scale looking at agricultural systems than there is on forest systems. But we will have we will have one on an agroforestry system um, set up in Johnstown Castle by the end of the infrastructure. So that's looking at uh, incorporating, I suppose, trees and grassland. It's not a it's not a full forest or woodland as you call it, but it's it's a grassland with significantly more trees than you know would would be in a typical grassland. Okay, and just out, out of curiosity, if you have or do you have have an ability by using wind direction to look at a number of different, uh, I suppose, management factors at a single uh, um, ethical variance tower? Yes, but the issue there is you're reliant on wind direction. So if you had four paddocks, for example, a nice square paddocks, and you put your tower right in the center of those four, your predominant wind is going to come from the southwest. So, you know, for any management effects that happen in the northeast, you're hoping that that management effect takes hold when the wind is blowing from the northeast, which is, you know, not going to be too often. So it wouldn't be ideal. You're kind of maybe two treatments and two treatments split fairly evenly in, in a southwesterly direction. You could, but it's ideal. Ideally, you want just the one. Uh, management type in in your your footprint. Okay, okay. there's another question there, James. Um, you know, can soil sort of meet a, a saturation point around carbon, or or will they continue to to sequester carbon? Uh, no, no. Annually? So they will they they will reach a point where they can no longer take any carbon in. But that you know we're talking, you'd want your soils fairly saturated to be able to, to reach that point. The likelihood of you reaching that point is slim. It is driven, however, by the, the, the clay content in your in your soil. So the likes of a sandy soil, for example, whereas it might sequester the same rate of carbon as, as a, a, you know, a, a heavy clay soil, like Solahead, for example, like that's, you know, they may take it in at the same rate, but Solahead has that ability to really hold on, to bind that carbon to the clay particles, whereas, you know, a typical sandy soil might not hold on to it. You know, it could be lost just as quick. The question yeah. there about the impact of the plant types going from a, a, a grass, which has a fairly uh, shallow root zones to clovers, which might be a bit longer to uh, a multi-species sward. Is that is there a possibility that that could have a significant impact by burying uh, carbon deeper? Uh, through those longer rooting uh, uh, plants. Absolutely, absolutely. So 
typically, you know, the, the main bulk of your carbon sits in that top 10, 20 centimeters, 30 centimeter uh, um, part of your soil profile. So if you can get plants that have the ability to shed the roots much deeper than that, then you have the ability to, you know, pull carbon and sequester it deeper in the soil than your typical ryegrass sward would be. Yes, absolutely. James, there's a question there. Um, could you please say a few words about the sensor measuring the CO2? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's an infrared sensor. Um, so it's using, you know, infrared is heat. We all know it when we we're using the, the heat lamps on on the uh, on the lambs in the winter. Um, so it, it, that that's what it's based off. And as I suppose the CO2 enters the analyzer, it hits this beam of, of um, light that's going back and forth across two mirrors. Okay, So the concentration coming in is taken by the difference in temperature between the inlet and outlet as it you know flows through the analyzer. That's how it, it measures it. And as I said, it measures it 10 times a second. So it's, it's a continuous flow, if you like. There's no break in the, in the data. It's able to pick up really minute changes. Okay, And there's a question there around the height. Do you adjust the height of the mask, the mast, James, or is it is it fixed? No, no, you can adjust the height of the mast. So typically uh, on a grassland, the mast stays at a, at a given height. So whatever, if you're in a four hectare field, for example, you might set your, your, your sensors to be, you know, two and a half to three meters high, somewhere in around there, because you're going to capture the, the, the four hectares typically with that kind of height. On a cropland is where you're going to have to start raising or lowering sensors, okay? So if you had a field of maize, for example, when that maize goes in first, you're going to set your instruments a minimum height of 1.6 metres above the, the top of the canopy. But obviously, as that maize grows, it would quickly get covered if you'd want to move your sensors. So in the likes of that, yes, you have to move your sensors with the with the growth of the crop, absolutely, and that applies for forest systems as well. If you're putting out a you know a, a tower on a very juvenile forest, as that forest grows, your tower is going to have to grow as well. There's a, somebody commented that uh, you didn't show the EPA as a collaborator in your list oh. of collaborators. Uh, what wondering? I did stipulate it was only some. I did okay. stipulate it was only some. Very good. So, <laughs> so they are there. But, but it, I suppose that one of the key questions in relation to the involvement of the EPA is yeah. is the acceptance of of I suppose some of the outcomes into the inventories uh, over yeah. the next while, and that's presumably going to be one of the the key parts where where involvement with the EPA will absolutely will yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah definitely yeah. Yeah, the EPA are, are the reporting body. So, you know, our data is going to have to be, you know, of, of decent enough quality uh, to be able to hand over to the EPA for them to report on it. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a question there, is there an average cost of the estimated single single tower or do you want to say how much value you have? Look, yeah, look, the, the, a CO2 tower now typically costs in the region of €80,000. And if you add the other gases to it? For every analyzer. So if you add a methane analyzer, the analyzer itself is worth 70,000. Just the analyzer. And then if you're going into N2O, you're, you're talking much, much lower concentrations of gas. Okay, so you're talking going from parts per million to parts per billion when you're, when you're looking at, at nitrous oxide. And again, to get an instrument to be able to record 
the very minute changes that could happen and happen instantaneously depending on a rain event after a fertilizer application, for example, that instrument you're looking at 125,000, anywhere to 150,000 for just that instrument. So, you know, if you have all three on a tower, you're very quickly over the quarter of a million. Okay, so yeah, it's a significant investment and a lot of people involved in bringing this, uh, I suppose, from raw da data into research. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. Currently, uh, you know, with the with because of we're still in the establishment phase, I suppose it's all fallen on poor Rachel. So, Dr. Rachel Murphy is head to to try and look at all of this data at the minute and, and make heads or tails of it. Um, it's certainly no no mean feat that she has ahead of her for sure. Hopefully she's a better computer than the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen. I think I think we've answered a, a lot of the questions that 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 have been posed. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, as the, the 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 data starts to to I suppose uh, uh, yield results and and give us better ideas. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a constant process over the next number of years. Yeah. So uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll bring you back and potentially bring Rachel back to, to uh, have a look at that data and, and what it's telling us about sequestration. Uh, I'd just like to, to thank you, James, for coming on. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for, for the questions. And uh, we'll see you again, hopefully next week. Stay safe on, on, until we do. Uh, with that, goodbye. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.